Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm a dork living in Portland, Oregon, who spent too many years listening to podcasts and not doing anything creative. This is my attempt to rectify that, to create and contribute something where I talk to people about their cultural obsessions and try to give some recommendations of my own. Welcome to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. Speaking of decades happening within weeks, as well as um, trying to achieve power, um, have you ever read anything written by Jonathan Matthew Smucker? You wrote he wrote a book uh, called Hegemony How to came out like last year. I know of the book and I've meant to read it. I follow him on Twitter. He seems really great. I haven't. I haven't. Well, actually, no, no. Amy has my hard copy of it, but I was gonna say I have a card, a hard copy of it around here somewhere. I just realized I left it lent it to my friend who is actually currently at the camp right now so that, that guy based on the tweets i see and have interacted with he's rooted in the tradition of organizing from those who've read the book you know they've kind of confirmed that but he yeah yeah he's thoroughly all his ideas come from a deep organizing perspective because mm-hmm. one of, but one of the things that he in in, in hegemony how to which i put out by i believe ak press was one of the one of the recommendations on this show last year but he talked about how because i think the, the book and came came out of a few essays that he wrote in response to just the failures of occupy and getting it's getting back to the um the the both the need but also the the popular failure to talk about power that the one of the issues uh, one of the limitations of occupy like he saw was just that you know they we had we had plenty of mass turnout but it was never turned it was never sharpened it was never you know it was um it was almost assumed that hey we just have people showing up here here's you know this is our you know our theory of change is just we got people to show up and like in kind of like what prefiguring you know living in this prefigured you know kind of like here we'll act as it, as as we want society to become and then you know question mark question mark question mark uh then you know and, and then finally you know there's the revolution and but in but one of the things i wanted but i want to bring up is um if you could talk about how do you use something like an occupy camp which is very topical in you know into a, as a way to organize people or I mean, hell, even or even radicalized, I guess. But it's just you know what can you know what can, you have if you with an Occupy camp because we have one currently going on in Portland. The debate in Washington D.C. continues in Southwest Portland. Protesters against ICE are camped out just outside the offices for the 11th day, and this comes as the Portland City Council had a public meeting with several immigrants' rights groups, including the Democratic Socialists of America. Assuming this episode gets posted before it gets rated and and the way that you know shit ain't gonna get better which means that you know there's gonna be another round of them coming within who knows how many years how do you take that and how do you organize people from there into something beyond just a a camp can can i ask a clear just a little clarification on your question sure the are you talking about how to radicalize people sort of watching the camp from the outside because certainly the people in the camp are pretty rad already. Like, what do you? Where, where do you take a camp? How do you orientate people into? Instead, of, like I said, we're operating out of the, you know, the previous model is the virtuous, personal, moral, uh, you know, radical liberal uh, action. Um, how do you get people into, to, to start moving in collective forms from there? How do you organize them towards, you know, be you know something beyond from there? After this outpouring of whatever you want to call it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, okay, to use two axioms to start with, if, if organizing is one definition, if organizing is moving power from them to us, mm-hmm. if that's a premise. Another premise on top of that is uh, Frederick D- Douglass said, uh, power concedes nothing without a demand. Right. So we want power to concede things to us. We need demands to do that. Um, you have to take whatever's happening and formulate demands based on what is happening. And I think DSA did a great job of this recently when we went to city council and made some demands on city council based on the activities of the camp. Mm-hmm. Along um, with the Direct Action Alliance, I believe there. Pete, Nora, members of the DSA actually presented a list of demands today to the city council, including how the city should handle the occupation here of this ICE building in southwest Portland. Demonstrators have been here now for 11 days. They say they're not moving despite receiving notices from federal agents to vacate on Monday and again on Tuesday. 
We are here to let Portland City Council know that we will not stand idly by while they look the other way and do nothing to stop Portland from being complicit in ICE's actions. Strong words today from the Portland Democratic Socialists of America, the group questioning the city council regarding its stance on immigration and policing. We are in a crisis right now, and we wanted to let city council know that there are specific concrete steps they can take to stop ICE's presence in Portland. Cat B. Smith presented a list of demands on behalf of the DSA. The organization is asking the commissioners to establish an Office of Immigrants' Rights here in Portland and fully fund legal defense services for undocumented immigrants seeking asylum. It's also asking the city to withdraw from the Joint Terrorism Task Force, a multi-agency unit that ICE is a part of. The city of Portland cannot participate in the JTTF and call itself a sanctuary city. Another demand that the city of Portland not cooperate with federal agencies in clearing demonstrators currently occupying the ICE building in southwest Portland. Mayor Ted Wheeler has already publicly stated Portland police will not help if federal agents were to attempt to sweep. Yeah, mm -hmm. different groups. You know? And so the, the camp itself had a, had a demand, like, get ICE out of Portland. And I think that was a great demand. And the, the self-activity of those people occupying, you know, that made national news and inspired people from across the country to, to do that. Um, it seems, it seemed initially they would, they would win their demand. Now it does not seem that way. ICE is back. The feds are there. You risk a long jail sentence if you get arrested by them. Um, so that demand, you know, is coming into conflict with the reality. The other demands DSA made, uh, one of them is for the city to end its relationship with the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Yep. Um, which we had, which we had for a while dropped out of and then rejoined for some reason. Right. And I think that demand is entirely achievable, like in very soon, actually. I think that, I think they'll get that. I think if they I think keep so going, too. they'll get it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey folks, this is Jeremy just popping in here. If you like what you're hearing, why not help us uh, make the show? You can support us for as little as a dollar a month donated through our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash giving the mic. Every little bit helps. Thanks. So, and I, so I, I think that's, uh, to answer your question, like every time anything happens ever, mm -hmm. you, an organizer thinks, what is the demand? How do we take this and funnel the energy into a demand and win that demand? Because so often as an Occupy, you know, people rightly criticized, myself included, like without demands, this energy will dissipate. Yeah. You know, the, the demand is like, you know, the, this, this funneling the steam to the engine. That is the pistons. <laughs> right. That, that is how you funnel power to achieve objectives. So an organizer always thinks first what is the demand here and is this you know do, and now the demands that dsa made are the demands at the camp as well the camp wants those demands good the city knows about those demands the city commissioners the chloe daily has talked about those demands at length and supports them so i guess that's the answer like that's the organizer mind is you know like that's part of the uh, it's being comfortable with power there's power here how do we move it to achieve actually achieve success mm -hmm. and a lot of people on the left they don't think about power in that way they aren't comfortable with power uh they might not know this explicitly but implicitly they think themselves to be powerless they think that the power dynamic is unchanging and thus what you can achieve is you know like just M these modest modest improvements well or not even that, are just like outbursts of righteousness and anger, you know? Right. You only have the performative aspect of... Uh, the uh, act. Of the act. Well, and it's like, like, like you know, like the, the, the sort of, I mean, radical, I don't know what you'd call her, philosopher Judith Butler, uh, in, in her book, uh, Gender Trouble, she, she kind of made it seem like, and I'm no expert, so please don't at me or whatever. Mm. Uh, <laughs> she kind of made it seem like all you had to... All you could do is sort of play around the edges of of gender, um, and 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 we had to just sort of accept that, which is always a misgiving I had with her as a as a as a writer was like there was no radical plan or or even like hope or potentiality that that I, you know that I, I feel like there's a lot of that, especially in the sort of bourgeois uh, academic academic 
uh, left, you know what I mean, that really kind of sits on their couches as well. And, and is, they're all much smarter than the rest of us, but they don't seem to have the heart. You know what I mean? The, the extent that people will avoid talking or dealing with power is impressive. Yeah. And that gets to so much of the issue that the left faces often is they don't want to deal with power dynamics or, you know, mm-hmm. changing the balance of power. You're very content talking about things. In the abstract. In the abstract, but never like, okay, here's how we do this. And it always comes down to personal conviction or personal shame or whatever it is, you know, to try to get people to get things to change it's never about you know like using power like like we need to wrench this from there to here you know what i mean we need power we need energy for that yeah, yeah. The, the the only lever is the only le- the only what do you call it theory of change i don't know the only like lever that will work is um that either will work or has been utilized popularly anymore is just you know on a moralizing on a vast scale and these are these are people that don't actually believe a revolution is possible if you ask the average person who calls themselves a revolutionary if you ask them do you think a revolution is possible in your lifetime they will say no which means they don't think it's possible they can't even conceive it happening period maybe sometime in thousands of years from now (laughs) it could be a thing and that's really how they're operating. They're operating yeah, from that a, perspective. That's a good point. They're rooted in that in that reality, and so their strategy is going to flow from that premise. If you don't think it's possible in your lifetime, like it's just not possible in a sense, because you, yeah, yeah. And I so what are you, what like are you that. doing here? Right. Why? What what game are you playing? I would suggest that to me, it's painfully obvious, more so every day, that things are changing incredibly fast. Three years ago, we could not conceive of a Trump-Bernie dynamic. The world today is vastly different than three years ago. And a year from now, it's going to be a lot different. That's how fast things are changing. A revolution, I think, is inevitable. And let's, we can talk about what that means as far as a revolution goes. But like, uh, I think a revolutionary mass movement... I'll define it like that Yeah, in general. An awakening mm. of sorts. Like, like I think it's possible. It, it's not only possible, to me it seems inevitable very soon. <laughs> Man. Based, based on the current trajectory of change in this country, things are changing so fast, and humans have like a conservative element of their psyche, which really adjusts to change very quickly. Mm-hmm. And after they adjusted to the Bernie phenomenon, which shifted the entire country to the left, people then said, nothing ever changes. No, very obviously things have changed dramatically and maybe not in material conditions so much Mm -hmm. but the precondition for that which is consciousness is shifting massively i I think that that's yeah that's absolutely true and that you know when i get bummed out about the supreme court i have to think about that sort of thing because supreme court could be irrelevant 10, 15 years from now. You know what Five I mean? Five years from now. Five. Wow. You're optimistic, my man. Well, I'm, I'm not even like trying to be optimistic. I'm just saying like from a pure math perspective, if you deal with calculus, which I definitely don't, <laughs> but calculus is... Jer- Jeremy's taking calculus, I bet. I've had too many math. Uh, oh. You can remember I've... Did I've, you do a proof of whatever he says? <laughs> Hell no. I, 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 hate, I, hate ge- I hate geometry. No, I, t- I took... You know, I was an engineering major. I took too many applied math classes, which are... Applied math and applied physics classes, which is what engineering well, is. Well, in, in physics, is you know that's the calculus. This is how things change. Mm-hmm. And so, if you take the trajectory of change that we're on right now, from last the last four years alone, and let's assume that same level of change continues for five years, very hard to imagine where that is. Right. And I'm saying, if that continues, the current level of change happens in five years. That's to me like there's a revolutionary yeah. movement already happening. Right. I, I guess when I think about what I thought was kind of rad, you know, when I when it, you know, let's say 15 years ago versus what I think is radical now, it I mean it is so different. Yes. Right. You know, I was yeah. yes. Um it it was I mean it's almost embarrassing <laughs> to talk about, but I would I would think like I'm trying to think of like remember Cindy Sheehan? Sure. Of course. I was like, "Wow, this man this this I mean she was cool." But that's a whole different, you know, this is, that's really still worth working within the system, you know, blah, blah, blah. and then it's like, wow, going from there to where, so you, you make a good point. I just, uh, 
I don't necessarily have the the bird's eye view maybe that you have of it. So well, and, and so that's what makes it harder for me. I and guess. again, like we get in myself every day. I kind of have to remind myself because otherwise you do get stuck in the here and now. Oh my God, Trump did so many shitty things the last week, and they are shitty and worrisome. Um, but you do have to take into consideration. Holy shit. On Saturday, there was a nationwide action where in like right. hundreds of cities, hundreds of thousands of people came out in the streets in opposition to that shittiness. And that's like comfortable suburban people doing it. You know what I mean? Up to a large degree, which well, is pretty cool. And so think about the Women's March that happened <laughs> after Trump was elected and all the protests that happened after he was elected. For millions of people, literally, <laughs> yep, that was their first ever protest. Right. Like half my workplace. Well, all those people shutting down airports. I mean... Let's not forget that. That was actually pretty enormous. Now that you're getting me really stoked now, I'm, I'm thinking of all that. What so what happened at, at your workplace? Well, just that uh, if you take Bernie and the Women's March, you had like a majority of a workplace that was apolitical the prior year become radicalized. These are these I work mainly with uh, working class women who have kids and seeing them evolve very quickly. And to fanatical Bernie supporters going to the Women's March, they're experiencing politics directly for the first time in, in a way that has changed their lives. And a lot of people who thought they were politically conservative are like, no, I like what Bernie's saying, which yes. I think is one of the most interesting things. Well, that makes my point even more clear. Like, that is how deep things have changed so fast. And there's no sign this will stop anytime soon. We're not going to just, okay, the change has stopped. No, we're not in a period that where that is the case. All we have before is, is ever more change. And an organizer has to look at that road ahead and say, okay, what are the possible challenges? How do we confront these obstacles or opportunities? Every change is either an opportunity. Oh, it's both a threat and opportunity. Yeah, there's only yeah, there are two outcomes. It's opportunity or a threat socialism or barbarism folks it's um and we already got plenty of barbarism here i i have a maybe a sort of a question that might generate something go for it so let's say someone's listening to this podcast and i hope someone does you know they have they have they have their own life context you know and um whether their politics are left or not what are you know like like we all live in the like in the context of a neighborhood for example like how do we organize in our neighborhood what we are, live in a society yeah, yeah like 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 is that something that i'm actually really curious about i want to know my neighbors better i want to and besides going to like neighborhood council meetings like i wanted to organize in my neighborhood about x you know what i mean like like what's the where do you start you know all that all that jazz maybe the neighborhood council meeting's the best place to start i don't know you know, I have a, I'm a bad person to ask about this. Because, <laughs> well, then don't answer the question. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why I have a built-in bias against neighborhood organizing. <laughs> okay. Um, what, just this town or just overall? I, well, I mean, my, my experience is, is this town, so I can only speak to that. But I, I, I have seen so many people try different attempts at organizing with their neighbors. And for whatever reason, it always kind of goes off the rails very quickly. Mm -hmm. And... If Margo were here, she would say, likely, that um, a built-in barrier is home ownership. Yeah. Yeah. Home ownership means, fuck you, I got mine, and my interest is my home and my career that supports my home. Yeah. And I'm kind of off the market when it comes to organizing potential. Full disclosure, I own a home, um, and I do... I past couple, three years, let's say, I've been wrestling with, I think, part of my... Part of my uh, reticence to dive in, so to speak, is probably an unconscious uh, anchor to that, to that, you know, that that tie. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. So, organizing is, is is about at the core of organizing is what do we agree on, and that's where we start, and that goes back to identifying the issues. You're organizing around agreements on issues you care about. So, your neighbors, for example. You knock on doors. Let's say you're only knocking on doors of homeowners. Mm -hmm. What do you want to change? Well, property taxes. I was, I was <laughs> going to say that. Most likely, that'll be the issue. Right. And it's possible that you could 
you know, uh, well, no, first, I hate that. That makes me feel gross. I don't want to organize well, on property taxes. I mean, first of well, all, that's Grover not Norquist. That's not a local issue. That's a, a city or state issue. Yeah. So that's a barrier right there. But like, um, yeah, people. Or they'll be like, how do we get all these homeless people out of our neighborhood? Or well, whatever. that'll definitely be on the agenda yeah, as I well. Know. I know. So you have all these contradictions. And like you said, like there's this, like you're rooted in your home and that is a barrier. And that is, you know, I would argue like the core uh, support for the establishment is those people who, uh, not all people, but people who own their homes. They've literally bought in. There you go. Well said. And that is the purpose of having a society built around right. home ownership or the aspiration to own a home, even if you're never going to own a home. Right. You know, the dream. Yeah, workers don't strike when they own their own property. Right. They own their own homes. And yeah. So I heard the, David Harvey say that years ago. Right. And that's so true. And that's intentional as a base of support for the government. Keep these people pacified. Um, I, I guess I was. So that's, that's to me the perhaps the biggest barrier for neighborhood organizing you you presume you have a connection with your neighbors but really do you and this goes back to the concept of community what is community and on left, left circles you hear about this all the time we got to build community and there's a very well-intentioned component of that and some of that is like yes we have to break out of alienation absolutely we have to do that mm-hmm but i don't i don't think there's an abstract community that we can create just outside of politics i think right. I communities think, are about ascription right like to a certain degree like we decide to be a community together you know whether we're in the same geographical location or not and and i would argue that what really binds people together uh in a real way is struggle so if you will want to avoid struggle and build community upon what, what what foundation? Well, we live kind of close to each other. Yeah, just locality. Well, um, proximity, and that's about it. Yeah, and you might find a neighbor that you connect with on individual hobbies or this or that. Yeah. You know, we think we're funny, you know, together, yeah. and that happens for sure. But an abstract community, um, I don't, I don't. That's always kind of the sorcerer's stone people are trying to find and never quite finding. Uh, whereas you'll find at a workplace, there's a built-in community. Right. Uh, even, you know, we all have the same experiences every day. We hate the fucking boss. You know, we want higher wages. And the struggle to achieve those things, that creates a camaraderie that is real community. Right. Through struggle, I learn to trust you because my fate depends on your actions and your, ina- your inactions affect me. So I, that is, and that's, I think, the highest level of organizing is people become radicalized through struggle. Um, for example, landlord tenant, if you are scared of your landlord, which most renters are, and you organize against your landlord and you win, you go from powerlessness to powerful mm-hmm. and you go from no community to community. We, we have people now, I didn't know their names last week or last month. And all of a sudden we're like best friends. We got each other's back. That level of solidarity is real community, which isn't created out of the abstract. Mm. It's, it's created through struggle. You know? Yeah, but let's say, I don't know. Let, let's say, um, let's say, let's say you're 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 violently successful, and uh, not that violence took place, but uh, you had a critical hit, as they would say in Dungeons and Dragons parlance, and you you don't have to struggle anymore. <laughs> like, does that dissolve the community? Well, it can. It 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 definitely can. Is it, that what ha- is that like kind of what happened in the United States? We had this the, you know the real radical agitation in the 30s and then everyone got kind of fat and lazy and then now we're living in the fallout of that. You know, I mean, I guess that's a pretty Well, there's a a core component of truth about that. Um pardon me one moment. Not that you have to have every answer to every question with regard to this, but it's just it's just that's a, a thought that arose to me that if we're defining community by struggle, you know, if there's an end to struggle, then there's an end to community. Well, and, and so this this begs the question, like, what is the goal? Right. You know? Where does it stop? Yeah. If you're never done, I guess. Yeah. And there's always a little bit to make better. Right. And there's definitely, and this also marks the difference between a revolutionary and a non-revolutionary. If the end of my struggle is I just want that wage increase, 
right. then I might be out of the game for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, one of the tenets of Marxism is that capitalism creates crisis. Right. And every crisis, is, A, it's inevitable, first of all. And, you know, and that, again, poses the question of what now? It's, you know, so in the, in the States, every 10 years, there's a recession, you know, like it's right. on a timer almost. Yeah. And the last one was 2008. And we're, we're fixing to get to the next one. It yeah. Seems like. Well, it's, yeah, we're, we're in a sense overdue. And then that question is then posed again. Like, what do we do now? Like, what next? And that, I think that's a, a key distinction of a revolutionary is, well, we can be locked in this, you know, generate this forever struggle of crisis uh-huh. or, and, 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 and scarcity. And Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah, or, or or we can have an, another vision that we can fight for, and you know, and the the states have been exceptional in a sense, in that we have there hasn't been a revolutionary period here. Well, you could argue that the post World War II uh, upsurge was like a pre revolutionary situation, mm-hmm. but other, most of the countries have had you know real re- revolutions post World War II. The biggest upsurge in world history, revolutionary wise, was the anti colonial upsurge post World War II, like. Literally, like, like over a hundred countries probably had, had revolutions that kicked out the colonial oppressors right. all, all over Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. You know, and and we, to us, that seems impossible that that could ever happen here. Whereas most of the countries, that's in their living memory. You know, right? Um, any other points you want to cover? Because like one of the things I did want to ask at some point is for. Um, Tips or sources or books or something that were interest for people who were really really want to know more what they should go check out. Or you have any? Um... Well, I, when in terms to, of just raw organizing, uh, which I think we're talking about mostly is so the the Godfather Salinsky and his Rules for Radicals is kind of like you know the Bible in some oh, ways. You guys were saying Saul Alinsky earlier. I thought you were saying Salinsky, like just using a person's <laughs> last name. Oh boy, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm going home. <laughs> so please don't please edit my name out of this episode, Jeremy. That that's a fine book. Um, I I mentioned earlier the there's a there's a pamphlet called Axioms for Organizers. That's just like one sentence, you know, statements about organizing that. You can read every day and apply it to organizing in a new way. And Jeremy mentioned uh, Jane McLevy, um, No Shortcuts. She has several books, but like... No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. So she she really gets to the core of a lot of this stuff. She's a seasoned organizer with a ton of experience. And um, reading her book exposes so much of the problems of the left and their lack a vision and outlook around organizing. Um, and one of my favorites I'll mention is um, Teamster Rebellion by Farrell Dobbs. He uh, was a Marxist who helped lead the Minneapolis uh, general strike in 1934. And the beauty of that book is, and there's a whole series of Teamster books that he wrote, is he just walks you through like step by step like what they did, how they did it. And you really learn strategy He's like, we encountered this problem, and then we thought about it, and we did this. And it's constant problem solving, and that is a key component of organizing. We have a problem. How do we solve it? How do we get into a mindset of all being problem solvers and not rely on any one person to be that person? Like, Let's all try to develop a problem solving mentality, whether it be like, in the organization, you know, like we need to fix this or that problem. Let's all like try to identify problems and solve them. And that cultural change in DSA is going to create the lay the groundwork for a lot of good organizing that will take place. I think. Awesome. I can dig it. You ever read anything about drum? Uh, that's the auto workers. The Dodge Revolutionary Union uh, Movement, which I just found out has actually happened 50 years ago last month. I have read some. You know what's funny? There's uh, there's people who believe... Uh, who was the other group that existed along that time? There were two militant revolutionary... It was like what? League, like what, the um, League of Revolutionary Black Workers, yes, I think? Yes, that's that the one. Yes. Uh, Bill Fletcher Jr. talks about that one. Yeah. 
League of Revolutionary for Black Workers originally came out of uh, consolidation of organizations such as Drums, Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, Elrum, which is the Eldon Avenue Gary and Axel, which is Eldon Revolutionary Union Movement, From, which is the Ford Revolutionary Union Movement, comes out of the Ford Rouge Complex, and Uprum, which is United Parcel uh, Revolutionary Union Movement, basically Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, was the beginning of uh, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. Drum started from a grievance that the black workers had. At the time, they were running 56 units or automobiles an hour on the line. There was no additional help. Workers were doing almost as, twice as much work uh, one day as they were doing the day before. You know, the foreman on the line, he has obligation to see that his section runs smoothly. And a lot of times, you know, they'll notice defective automobiles going down the line. You know, all he wanted to do is get it the hell out of his area. You know, get that car out on the street. You know, and uh, at it by any means necessary. This is when we begin to realize we were in a two-fold struggle. We soon started making demands that it would seem that the UAW should have been making, such as uh, the demands on the production standards, the overtime. Workers were beginning to question just who did the UAW represent the workers or the corporation. So those two groups, a lot of people to this day blame on like the failure of the auto industry in the States. No shit. Yeah, to this day. Of course, it's the workers' fault. Right. It's the, no, well, yeah, it's a, and of course, it's the black workers' fault. Yes, right, yes. Right. The, the, yeah, double, the double yeah. scapegoat. You know, black people just wanted too much, too well, fast. Uh, when you have this getting along, naturally it serves to eliminate some of the labor problems that we were faced with back in the early years of unionism. And with the elimination of those problems, it means for regular working. You don't have the wildcat stoppages, the, uh, the strikes and what have you. I, I don't think there's any doubt about the fact that uh, as the automotive industry goes, so goes city of Detroit. So goes this country, more or less. Naturally, we lose money when we are not working. So it, it's, for, it's the best. Uh, getting along certainly eliminates the lost time that is not necessary as far as we are concerned. So, so, uh. so part of, I mean, part of the, the slander is that, you know, you demand too high wages, you drive people out of the market. There's an element of truth in that, in, um, in terms of like profitability. Yeah. You've caused a profitability crisis, and capitalism produces only for a profit. So on that part of the, the critique, that may have some truth in it. Um, less investors if there's less profits. Right, but that, that also depends on a, on a system of international sovereign nations that can undercut each other competitively within a capitalist market. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, but anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Well, the, the other piece, the other critique of those two groups is that uh, they stop production so consistently. They were like, oh, you disciplined Jimmy, we shut down the plant. Yeah. And that was happening. Like, this is like top-level militant organizing and so the critique is like they, they couldn't produce in a way that was consistent or predictable and they had to move or they had to like doubly attack the union and get rid of these folks because it was just like too obstructive to right well production it was hurting people's ability to consume and and for some reason uh, uh consumption is an absolutely uh uh uh, unreputable, you know, yeah. you know, moral position of human activity. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like what they're getting in the way of us consuming. You yeah. Know? And it, uh, it, it, also, it begs the question also, like who rules the workplace? Right. You know, and when the workers are so obviously in charge, you, you, the capitalists have a, a real crisis, right? Their, their job is to implement, you know, conditions and a union's job is to defend the workers. But there becomes a point where like, they go from defense to offense. Mm -hmm. Like, we are a complete control. And that's kind of what happened. And the capitalists were like, holy shit, this is completely out of control. We've, we've lost all control of the workplace. Yeah. So we're going to burn it all down. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> That's wondering. all they can do, right? Like, <laughs> like, I was kind of wondering what would have happened had George Meany either never gotten in charge or had gotten kicked out about 1968, 1969. 
What are you referring to like the like the anti radical, anti militant unionism piece of it? Or I think part. Well, I think part of it was was because of being. Tell the people who George Meany is. Good evening. Tonight my guest is AFL CIO Chairman George Meany, who will be discussing collective bargaining agreements. It's a pleasure to be here, Quasti. Let me be blunt. Is there a labor crisis in America today? Well, that depends what you mean by crisis. George Meany was the, I think he was like the head of the team, well, no, not the teams, the UAW f during the, it, you know, f definitely from like the Johnson to like the Nixon administration. Labor delegates representing 16 million workers gather in New York for the history-making merger of the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations. The merger is the culmination of 20 years of effort. Symbolically, Walter Ruther, CIO president, and George Meany, AFL president, declare the meeting open jointly to thunderous applause. The meeting, however, reaches its climax with the nomination of officers for the new AFL-CIO organization, largest in the world. Walter Ruther nominates George Meany as president and is himself named one of the 37 vice presidents. And I think one of the reasons why, um, one of the many reasons why, Especially in the late 60s when you had a lot more, it's like, you know, after the left had kind of gone into universities because, you know, the they had kicked out all of their, you know, all the unions had kind of kicked out all their leftists. And um, the a lot of the universities were, were rallying around, you know, the anti-war movement. And George Meany was not anti-war. And I think forbade union members, you know, the rank and file from like uh, participating uh. in anti-war movements. So it's one of the reasons why like you had... So I he think, was a more square union leader. Um, he goes way beyond more square. He was full on like, um, I don't even remember how you... I don't even think, Do you want to say reactionary? I think part of it, yeah. Yeah, okay. But he was one of the reasons why, like because if... It's one of the reasons why, like, um, late 60s um, radical left movements had, were, had, you know, were deliberately split with, say, more, you know, more union groups because a lot of the unions were already, you know, like I said, by that point, had, they they were had gotten comfortable off of their gains. But also right. a lot of them were much more, you know, they weren't anti-war. They were, they had had 15 to 20 years of anti-communism, you know, beaten into them uh, in that so like they weren't exactly going to be protesting a war that were fighting the communists. This is this is this like we're way out of my subject matter area here. This is <laughs> you know way like, more about is, it than I do. This John. is like this is sub, this is like sub Wikipedia. And this is this is me reading <laughs> well, a copy of. Don't of, apologize. It's all right. Of of Max of uh, uh, Max Elbaum's Revolution in the Air. But, well, let me bring that to, to organizing and with the unions. A, a union, all a union is, is workers at a work site. That's all it is at its heart. And so you organize around, around agreements, and the agreements typically arise from the conditions at the work site. Wages, benefits, working conditions are the core of what a union is for, to mm -hmm. defend yourself from the boss, you know, to get some basic living standards. So to expect a union to be revolutionary is a bit of an unfair expectation. Um, and they typically only happen when there's an upsurge society-wide. Mm -hmm. So, and even, so a union is going to, a union is just working people. My coworkers don't identify themselves as union members. They happen to belong to a union as well. They are apolitical people for the most part. So to demand them to adopt revolutionary slogans is kind of silly, you know? True. So, but yes, a union gives you an opportunity to engage people, to educate people, to push them in that direction, which it should do. But ultimately, like, these, you know, are just average people. So that's, I kind of think about that a lot when I think about, like, people criticizing unions for this or that reason. Many criticisms are valid. But again, I think of my coworkers. I, I know I've, I've engaged with thousands of people in my union and most people are just trying to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Can you define or give an example of workerism? 
I have no idea what that, what that means. You ever heard of worker isms? Worker ism? I, I might have heard of that, of that concept. Is that like, that's like a left jargony concept? Yeah. Oh hell yeah. <laughs> it's what the thing I've heard of is workerism is kind of like almost a, um, a fetishistic embrace of the of the working class okay. yeah, sure. as like revolutionary subject. Yeah. And it's it's I mean this, which has been going around since like at least like. The, crisis this was in the late 60s where what was it, like a bunch of like trot groups were telling their own members like okay here we're gonna have you in you know you know and you know salt these workplaces and enter in so you have to like stop doing drugs and cut your hair not realizing the fact that the actual you know people who were in the in the workplaces were all you know had you know were long hairs you know doing drugs well by that definition i I am also a workerist, I suppose. Um. <laughs> well, there's, but, there, but, there, there, but there's a fetish, like I said, I think there's, there's like a fetish aspect to it. It is, it is it's like over imbuing, uh, you know, the employee as um, the agent of change. Yeah, it's some, there's some, there's, there's something. Yeah, like I, I don't know a full definition of it. It's, well, it's, it's, it's popped well, up in a couple. It's popped in a couple of our episodes uh, that we've talked about before with like other guests, but. Um. I just want to say that 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 I, I'm not familiar with the term workerism either, but the the um, there's a couple of comparative political philosophy books that I've read. Uh, one by a guy named Will Kimlaika. He's a sort of Canadian political philosopher, and he he's very much of the sort of like uh, John Rawls sort of. I don't know if you guys know, uh, but but a school of political philosophy, and so he's a, he's a liberal. I mean, he's a liberal basically is what you'd call him, and. And and his criticism of Marx is kind of on the workerist using work as the basis of how you organize or arrange a society. Um, I don't think he's right, but I think that a lot of regular ass people reading what he's saying would 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 go like, yeah, you guys esteem the worker way too high because there are people that can't work, for example. Yeah, like that's one that's one criticism. And I was years and years ago, I was at an ISO meeting checking out ISO to see if it was an organization I wanted to be. It was probably like 10 years ago. And I and I said that I said, I said, you know, there are going to be people who don't want to work and there are going to be people who can't work. And what do you do about that? And And, and I got something about how I was being ableist. That was the, the criticism levied against me that I was, that I was basically saying that like people with um, physical disabilities wouldn't be able to work and thus like would not be cherished in our society. I'm like, no, you just take care of those people. You know what I mean? Um, so that's my experience of a sort of workerist mentality, if you, mm. if you will. Well, I'll, I'll say as a, a workerist myself, Apparently, um, <laughs> I am. I know. I know. I'm misusing the term. It's, no, no, that, that's, that's but... fine. That's fine. Let's, let's misuse it together. Um, <laughs> I it's a so safe space. I feel like when I ask somebody what they do for a living, that tells me much more information than anything else about that person every single time. And in this culture, we shy from that profoundly. I'm not just my job. <laughs> well, yeah, of course you're not. You know, but it tells me a lot of information, whereas your hobbies tell me only a little bit about right. who you are. You know, what you do for a living really defines so much about your total social existence. Mm -hmm. You know, who your friends likely are, where you likely live, who you relate to on a daily basis. Yeah, part of a material analysis. Is that what you're talking exactly. about? Exactly. Yeah, Deeply rooted. Where you shop. I know so many things about you instantly when you tell me where you work or don't work. And if you don't work, either you're disabled, which is fine, um, or you got money somehow. Yeah. And that tells me a lot as well about who you are. Or you're like Charles Bukowski. <laughs> so, so yeah. The, the, the yeah, it tells a lot, in the, but only like in one particular case. Yeah. <laughs> right. I know he's, he's an outlier. I, listeners, Charles Bukowski is an outlier. And, it, and also, like... And when it comes to politics, like in DSA, or like, you know, as things kind of get heated socially, and folks join DSA, what do you do for a living? Oh, uh, I'm in between job jobs right now. Okay, well, I'd feel a lot more comfortable knowing, you know, how you can afford not to work. You know, maybe you're an FBI agent. You know, ah, yeah, good point. It's a lot easier to know you're not when I can see you at Fred Meyer working. You know, ah. there's, that, there's that piece to it. I really know who you are better when you have a job. And so when it comes to like the agent and change piece, I believe that we're not going to ever win the revolution until we have the broader population engaged in politics. 
Yeah. And that means all my coworkers. And because I have a union, I have a way to engage them politically. Do you think that's where people should start? Just talking to your uh, your coworkers about their problems? You say, hey, here's here's a problem I have. Do you have this problem, basically? like, I mean, you're going to talk about work regardless at work. You know, you, you, you're going to, and you're all going to have a, a similar experience to some extent. Right. So, yeah, talk to your coworkers. Um, different jobs are going to be amenable or not to, like, having a union. Um, but, I mean, just being at work, you don't want to be, like, so isolated you want to have some camaraderie with your coworkers right. if Absolutely. you have contact with anyone. Hopefully, you do, you know. Um, but yeah, like as a way to judge where we are on the path to social change, gauging where your coworkers are all are pretty important. Yeah, these are apolitical people for the most part. Um, hopefully, I want everybody organized. I want everybody radicalized, and my immediate periphery is a place I can have effect on. So, in that sense, I'm a, a workerist. Right. <laughs> Do you, either of you guys have anything you've been digging on lately that you would like to share with the viewing audience? You go first. Okay, I can go first. I read. I actually have a short stack now that I now that I keep thinking about it. Um, I read an interesting. I'll start with the most boring thing. It's an. It's a, a pretty interesting uh, academic article called uh, "Constitutional Hardball." It's by an author named um, Mark Tushnet, and he's a Stanford political scientist or something, something to that effect. Um, I just I found it really interesting, and 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 at very least, it's something you could we should be able to like hand to the fucking Democrats that are actually in power at the moment. And say, uh, uh, try this, like try doing this. Um, another thing, I went and watched. Uh, this is this is a, my very normy uh, recommendation: the new documentary about Mister Rogers. And I was weeping almost the whole time. Oh, it was wow. very good. Huh. Uh, and you want to talk about someone with a firm moral center and conviction uh, that that could, you know, even though they say they make a point to say in the movie he was a lifelong Republican. Uh, Weird. Yeah, it is really weird. I thought I thought the exact same thing. Um, if if more people thought like him, I feel like we would have a, a uh, something close close to a, a, an idyllic society. Um, that was quite good and quite moving. Um, what else? I'm watching. I'm going to mention this: uh, the second season of The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. You can watch that. Um, the only reason I say that, and because I think it, I think it actually pertains to the conversation we're having because. That's a show that shows you a society in which the rules are really strange and everyone has to follow them. And even when they're revolting against one another, because it's a lot about revolt when you watch it. Um, but they still have to do it within these weird rules that we look and, and these rules were in place like 100 years ago, let's say. I don't know. I don't you know, I'm no expert on this stuff, but showing you how these pow these these dominant submissive relationships within society work. And how weird they are, and if we could train ourselves to go, oh, why? Why do we all think? Why do we all think that this person deserves power over us? Um, um, a sh that show shows you how weird these rules can be, mm. and if we can think about how they're weird now, we can start, you know, breaking that down. And I think that's oh, and and David Graeber's new book, which Jeremy already mentioned, bullshit jobs. It's pretty good. It's 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 a uh, I, I listened to it rather than read it, and I think that that's a perfectly fine way. It's not like debt where you, you know, his his book about debt, which you, like, really have to read or you're not going to get that much out of. And those are my recommendations. Um, I am reading, I'm almost done with the book, uh, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. <laughs> and that's about... i heard that title alone. It's a good book. It's uh, written by a participant and historian of the civil rights era, and he talks about how there was never a nonviolent movement. It was always deeply intertwined with violence, self-defense mainly. Um, and it, it's a history of uh, black self-defense in, in the U.S. And some interesting, uh, amazing stories throughout it, which I like a lot. Um, I watched one episode of, of The 3% on Netflix. Oh, I've never heard of that one. It's uh, Watch it. Okay. It's a, a pretty savvy social critique from what I can tell from an episode. Okay. Um and and painful to watch at times. 
Um, and recently watched uh, Annihilation, the movie. Yeah, that's uh, Annihilation is good stuff. <laughs> it's it's really beautiful and scary. I don't even know what that is. Annihilation, and there's a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> And, <laughs> is it going to bum me out? Well, the re- no, the, no, the movie will not. The movie's awesome. The reason why you don't know about it is because the the movie, the uh, I think the movie studio had no fucking clue what to do with it because mm. it was. Oh, is it strange? Um, yeah, yeah. It's it okay, was entirely on board. It's the closest thing to Tarkovsky that Hollywood is going to put out for the next five years. Hell yeah! Okay, I'm watching that. Uh, the lead actor is Natalie Portman. Yes. Ah, okay. Cool. It is it is much more cerebral and much more intelligent. I mean, like I said, it's it's still kind of like it's a Hollywood sci-fi, act, you know, bits of action, but a shitload more of of body horror than you would expect. It is it's in that isn't it? Oh, do you want to describe any more of it? Or I was terrified. <laughs> it's oh, it's it's a, it's a all right, cool because I love it's creepy. It's because that means I can get my my the, fiance on board for it. She loves creepy. There horror, are there's so. at least three different. There are there are at least three extremely creepy scenes. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. I'm on it. Yeah, it it is. It's an an adaptation of Jeff Vandermeer's the first book of his Southern Reach trilogy. Okay, the book version is a mix of part of of Stalker, the Stanislav 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 Lem. That's how you say it, isn't it? Yeah book and also Tarkovsky film mixed with the, the book is, is a mix of that and also in H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountain of Madness the film itself is different than the book but there are a lot of elements okay. of stalker still involved that's enough that's good it was pretty awesome yeah <laughs> it's good stuff yeah it, it's that was the thing they were talking about how and I think Red Letter Media even brought this up about how um that you had a um it's weird that the film studio like when, um, when you know, and their mark, like mar- their marketing push for like the like the all lady Ghostbusters stuff, which you know about you know about a much uh, effectively like a much dumber film. Like you have like all these like you know like a you know, full female leading cast, and you know like smart intelligent women doing this stuff, and then you know kind of fizzling. But then you have an, you have like the um, the same kind of thing because it's it's you know the 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 team that goes into the the zone in the film. Are just you know it's our women with uh, a varying like um, military or scientific training and you know it's a very competent in what they do, but it's, but the, the marketing around the film did not emphasize that right. Aspect. And then it would have been a huge hit if they had done it that way. If they basically marketed it like they did Ghostbusters, is that what you're saying? Or it was more likely to be a huge hit. How's that? I think. Well, I think they had they known how to market it, or had at least attempted to. Like it was the thing. It was the thing where they put it out in the theaters in like America, and like dumped it on Netflix everywhere else, except for the point where it got so much buzz in like England and Europe that they started because uh, people would rave about it. It was released on Netflix, and so this is. I might be pretend. I might be getting my timeline wrong, but you know, I'm a podcaster. It's getting things wrong is is my forte. Um, that. They st- this, the, the 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 theater the the studio kind of like grudgingly put out some like the- theatrical screenings for it, so yeah, uh, see an- yeah I I agree yeah see annihilation preferably with the biggest screen you can with the best sound system yes, you can yes <laughs> it's an instant classic yeah yeah oh I'm so excited about this you guys <laughs> yeah it's like I said it is it's it's Tarkovsky with body horror hell yeah okay yep here we go I will second recommend watching Annihilation. Uh, I will also recommend if um, you might need to fast forward through a couple segments because of the, the thing, certain direct directorial um, uh, choices. Watch Tar- uh, Tarkovsky's Stalker. Plus one, that's a good movie. Yeah, the only kick. I mean, he I mean, Tarkovsky himself, uh, you know, Russian film director who wound up who <laughs> because they filmed this film on on uh, a section of Estonia that had been used for nuclear testing. And the fact that that Tarkovsky himself was like a chain smoker wound up like he would be dead within six or seven years of the film coming out. Hmm. But it is a uh, you said watch Stalker. It's a classic. Um, yeah, no, I'm not. It's a, I'm just trying to think of, no Stalker is not based on Stanislav's love. Solaris is the is the Tarkovsky film that he adapted from from a Stanislav Lem book. Solaris is the one that's set in yeah. the Stalkers from those aren't they brothers? Isn't the Strigat- yeah. yeah. 
uh, my second recommendation is read Roadside Picnic, especially the uncensored the the version that came out the second the the later versions because originally it had been censored by by Soviet state censors. Kind of a um, golden age, late sixties science fiction story about what happens where effect. Um, it's called Roadside Picnic. It is it, it's effectively what would happen. You know, it's taken from the point of view of. What would happen if you know, if, if, if uh, a colony of ants discovered like the trash that like a people would you know leave from a picnic they took on the roadside, and, like you know how would they how would they regard like a candy wrapper or like the ring of a beer can, and now take that and now make that where aliens have sometimes has for whatever reason they visited Earth and they've left behind certain things that have kind of changed reality, and how do the humans who live there deal with that? It's also, if you've ever played the Stalker video game series, it ties into that. Get out of here, Stalker. But it's yeah. also easy to find for free online, just, yeah. just FYI. Like I said, yeah, uh, read Roadside Picnic, read Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation, go see the film adaptation of, of Annihilation, see Stalker, um, and last but not least, oh, uh, also read and see Solaris, both versions. <laughs> um and the book is good too. So it's a Russian sci-fi themed. Yes, except uh, Lem was Polish. Oh, was he? Okay. But they're all, you know, it's all like, you know, this is all it's more like Soviet sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, uh, for podcast, well, back to science fiction. There's a there's a um, kind of a, I guess you could call it a comedy narrative sci-fi show out of Brooklyn called Miss Mission to Zix Z Y X X. It is a mix of. It's a lot of like sci-fi space tropes, a lot of space opera tropes, but there's far uh, it's it's it, the story about a, about a crew of ambassadors for either you know either the 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 Federated Alliance, um, and they go out and like meet different uh, different planets it's, to introduce themselves to try to get these people you know this this alien species to join the Federated Alliance and it's there's a I mean it's a mix of like yeah there's the obvious of uh, Star Trek and Star Wars, but there's a lot of like Red Dwarf and Futurama mixed in too. Five hundred paces from here. Sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. If you go over there, you might just fly off into space. <laughs> Whoa! Oh, good day to you, sir. Good day. Good. Whoa! Oh no! Oh no! Did that happen a lot? <laughs> I mean, every once in a while. I mean, people we've are... only been here for a few minutes, and that has happened already once while we were staring at this. Oh no! It's usually in cases of marital squabbles. <gasps> sure, sure. Oh. I just learned the real meaning of love. <laughs> they could have just learned the real meaning of anything. Yeah, that's true. That could have been yeah. anything not at all. Probably not X Mars. No, no, no. So like, it's called Mission to Zix. It's pretty funny. It's a nice little like, like they're like twenty, you know. 30 to 40 minute episodes based out of a you know improvised comedy from uh from brooklyn so yeah check it out mission to zix wrapping everything up if you want how can folks find you on the internet uh i'm on facebook friend me i guess (laughs) (laughs) there you go (laughs) seamus cook on facebook or twitter as well same name I am also on Twitter. I'm at Comrade Garrett. I don't. I've been inactive, but sometimes I have bursts of inactivity or bursts of activity I'm the same. Uh, in a in a general bed of inactivity. Um, so you could you could uh, press your luck, see what happens. Um, otherwise, I I sing for a country and western music band. Uh, what I do. Um, we're called Late Shift. Uh, I think I think it's Facebook.com slash Late Shift Country. There's not a ton of media on there, but there's like a couple of videos and whatnot. So if you live in Portland, you can find out what we're playing uh, when we're playing, and you can come see us. We're pretty good. Awesome. Awesome. And you can find the sh- come reach us at the show. Uh, like us and subscribe us. Like I said, if as always, with the standard podcast ask, if you have iTunes, uh, search giving the mic to the wrong person. Five stars if you could. Leave us a little message, uh, a little review if you could. That for thanks to Apple's magical algorithms, that greatly helps people find us. Uh, you know, look us up on Facebook. Also, because we are a modern podcast, we do have a Patreon. Uh, if nothing else, just to help with like hosting costs. Find us at, you know, you can support, you know, the continuation of this show for as little as a dollar a month. You can find us on Patreon.com. You can't afford a dollar a month? Yeah. 
You can find it. Uh, find dirt bag. I'm sorry, Jimmy. assholes. Yeah, <laughs> find yeah, find if you can. Like you know, if you can, you know, kick in a you know, donate or help contribute. As little, you know, like I said, you can help us put out the show for a little as a dollar a month or more. Feel free to go more, but it's it's at Patreon.com/slash Giving the Like, and all of these links will be in the show notes as usual. And we're on Twitter at giving them like yada yada yada. All right, that is, this has been a hell of a, a hell of an episode. I want to thank my uh, thank Seamus and Garrett for joining us today. Uh, do we have any any uh, any last words? Uh, no, just be excellent to one another and, and party on. Thanks for having me. Rock and roll, pleasure. Yeah. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. maybe yeah well i don't i don't remember the exact way his his music goes yeah like that that's exactly it wow no it's a cool it's a cool setting thing it's one of those it's a chip tune song do you know what that is it's like a little 8-bit video game yeah it sounds like it's basically video game music but these these there's this whole you know sort of global society of people that have fun using that the 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 engine or whatever they used to generate music for video games to make their own original music mm. it's kind of cool hmm. yeah um... so if i if i cuss can we like blank it out later if you well, want. Well, yeah, or we could not blank it out. Are you worried <laughs> yeah, your, your grandmother's going to listen to this episode? <laughs> yeah, people always say, yeah, can we cuss in there? And they're like, yeah, we uh, we demand it. So we require it. But yeah, it's part of our... I can always, it's like part I said, of our strategy. It's the benefit of not be, uh, not broadcasting out to the... Uh, you know, two real-time dead writers. Like, cause we're 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 going uh, we're going live. Well, not even live to tape. I chopped the hell out of the stuff just to um, kind of fit it into. Can you hear yourself? Or yeah, I just um, it's a little low. So I was, okay. but I don't know which one I am. You are this one on the very end here. The oh, the far end. Okay. Yep. You might want to talk to yourself. Hello. Check, check, check. Okay, cool. I couldn't tell if my gain was too low or if my earphones were, were too low and it was the earphones so. right we can the benefits of being able to that's the fun of having a mixer is you can separate the two which is why when i recorded all of the um all of the um the talks last week for day school i wanted to actually get a mixer for it because the um the our little uh, pa gear has a line out but the line out is not really conditioned so like going from that straight into a recorder was a bad idea which is why I just had to set, take the recorder, set there on the little on the, mm-hmm. the little front pew thing, and um, record from there. Um, Excuse me. Can sorry. I photograph us, or is that? Oh, go for it. Yeah, secret? that's totally fine. But it's just me and Jeremy. It's... One, two, three. Okay, thanks. That was fun. Yeah. Um, the usual format for the show is, you know, introduce everybody. Um, Kick uh kick off the um you know, kick off the subject. Uh, at some point, the go the thing um you know our topics are not exactly like all that restrictive. It's kind of like our topics are kind of starting point, and we kind of go wherever the conversation goes. Um, hopefully, once in a while, I try to keep on topic. Also, I got like a pen and a pen and uh, notes if you want notes or anything. I'll take a pen. Actually, Thank I you. want this pen. Yeah. yeah. But um This is like see, this is what I'm talking about. The government could just just buy this company and say, This is the perfect pen, let's just make this pen and everyone pays cost or gets them for free. This is the sort of thing I'm talking about. Well here, if you actually what interesting about that pen, click it for a minute and I think it's does it have a round pointer? And you, that is actually not even a perfect pen. That's um, I had <laughs> I Frankenstein that pin together out of uh, out of another oh little pin tail. What have you done? It's actually better. It's better than the original version. Damn! What a guy! All right. Yay! It's fun being an engineer. Everything is the world can be improved. Um, rough format is I think for today's show because I just want to do one just effectively like organizing one on one because it's one of those things that pe- like a lot of people talk about and nobody actually knows mm-hmm. and. 
in one of the neat things about Jane McAlevey's book is she actually spells out the difference between um, organizing advocacy and activism. Because I think, especially for like, what, the last 25 years, they've effectively been synonymous. Uh, it's one of the things I like about her book is that she actually... Can you recall the breakdown of those, Jeremy? Uh, yes, and we'll do so in the in the show. The, um, but I guess just kind of like an over, like an in, call it like an, you know do this like a uh, like an intro educational session for folks. Sure. Yeah. Um, one of the other topics that I wanted to go about later, as I mentioned, like last week, is um, you know how do you, <laughs> how do you use something like an Occupy camp to organize people with, or like you know where and or. What you know? Where can you go from once you get a, you get a, this mass? Um, you know, how do you try to you know start to orientate people who come out for this this huge mass emotional event towards something a bit more coherent than like a bunch of like radlib lifestyleist kids? That's uh, perfect. Yeah. And then we usually and then we and then somewhere in there near the end we usually always we ask folks for like recommendations and endorsements. So it's like whatever you've been digging that you want to like share with people, which is everything from, um, I think at one point uh, Garrett endorsed a he endorsed the line of guitars that he just started playing. Uh, I mentioned stuff like you know like here everything from like a new Assad Hater uh, book to. Um, I think Wolfenstein too, because I'd been playing that at the time. So it's kind of like any, it's it's effectively yeah. What have you been digging on that you want other people to to, uh, to find out about? And that in we go for. Do you have any? Do you have any like uh, hard outs for your time? No. Okay. Cool. We usually we go until we're done, which is usually which usually go, I don't know, like like what like ninety minutes ish. Yeah, that's about right. I would say so. Ninety minutes with breaks. Okay. It's it's kind of it's just how the. Um, a lot of it was just like how the conversation flows. I don't have a hard out, Jeremy, but I'd like to be done at by eight thirty. Okay, what time is it? It is that gives us two hours ten. Okay, that should be enough. I'm a pretty succinct person. Good, good, um, great. Then uh, we'll good. be out of here in thirty five <laughs> minutes. That is excellent because I am not. <laughs> you, I, you can carry us then. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's um, yeah. That's the kicker. It's one of the things. Well, I'm, I'm good at asking questions because I have the. Uh, oh, good. The persona of, I'm I'm not. Uh, well, it's not a persona. It's like <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit when I don't know something, and so I don't mind asking. Sure. So I like to uh, ask questions. So I think hopefully that won't become tedious. But but I try to take the perspective of someone listening that might not understand. They might not be hep to whatever mm-hmm. is going on, Perfect. and then in whatever way I'm not hep, you know. I, I like to get that information too. All right, hang on. I'm just going to play this back for a minute.